Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. There's something wrong in the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. friends and welcome to the Seeker Podcast at Service of Change, where we challenge reality, question that which we've been taught in hopes of inspiring a new direction of thought to bring about change. I'm your host, Dennis Nappy II. On this episode of the Seeker Podcast, I'd like to jump into some of the things going on in the world, some current events that are of significance, and also want to talk a little bit about World War One and some of the the things that have come out of that that impact us today because, as we know, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it, and it's something that I'm currently exploring in my profession as a teacher, teaching it to my students, and I'm learning as I go. Really fascinating and eye-opening stuff, and I think it parallels some of what's going on today that we need to be aware of. been a, uh, a tiring week once again. I feel like I'm starting off every show over the past month talking about how tired and exhausted I am. You know, a side note, I um I was on Instagram. I, I took I took Facebook off my phone. I only access it through my computer now because it was just sucking up too much time and it was just this mindless scrolling that the next thing I know I'd lose ten minutes that I actually don't have as I'm scrolling through uh, so I took it off my phone. And I, you know, I freed up some time. But then, I guess, as a coping mechanism, I started spending a little bit more time on Instagram. And I, I did something yesterday that that I, I wasn't going to talk about on the air tonight. But I'm just going to minimize my discussion of it real quick. I, you know, I, I made a comment that I now regret doing. I regret saying uh, somebody had a posting, uh, and it was a meme, and the meme said that uh, it, it was talking about women of African descent have now developed immunity to the HIV virus. And underneath it, it said uh, something along the lines of, we know the government was testing this on people. It, it was I, I'm butchering how it was worded, but that was the gist of the meme. I skimmed through the comment, but didn't, didn't read it thoroughly enough. Um... You know, a lot of a lot of interesting information in there. A lot of you know, there are a couple sources that I could go check out, but nothing. I saw nothing that mentioned that this was actually tested on unknowing subjects. So I made a comment. I said, "Hey, this is this is some really great information, but uh, you know, we need to be careful when we make these statements because it, it it's an assumption that these tests were being done on people unknowingly. Now I know that this stuff has happened in the past. I'm sure it goes on today." I just felt I needed, I wanted to say, make sure you're presenting, you know, citing your sources. I was, I was tired. I was out of it. I don't think it was an appropriate comment for me to make because number one, I'm just coming out there critical as if I'm on some kind of high horse that the owner of the post came back with a vengeance. He he ripped me a new one and I started to defend my post and he came back even harder. And, uh, at the end of the day, whether I agree with that one comment or not, I feel that I was wrong for the approach that I took. I, I don't usually get involved in discussions or debates. It's not my place to tell somebody they're wrong. It's absolutely not. A and I advocate that on the show because it just promotes arguing. I'm all for sharing information. I'm all for if you end up having a discussion online. But I started that off just by being critical. And I can't stand when trolls do that. And that's exactly what I did. So I, I felt really, I mean, it messed me up. I felt really bad. As silly as it is, that's something that's important to me. 
um, you know, is, is not coming off that way. So I sent an apology, but I, you know, I never heard back from the guy and, you know, obviously he was pretty pissed off at me, but, uh, you know, I never said anything, uh, angry towards the guy. I, I just, I feel that I came off in a, in a fashion that wasn't appropriate and that's not my style. Uh, I, I don't know why I felt the need to say something like that. If you see stuff out there on social media that even if it angers you, let it go because it just sucks up your time and it gets you emotionally charged up. And, and I felt it. I felt the energy drain uh, because I then I started realizing this is a debate I don't want to have and, you know, I don't want to be associated with the comment that I made uh, because I felt that my comment was, was not as intelligent as it could have been. So... Lesson learned for me, I actually took Instagram off my phone today. Uh, I may go back on from time to time. I, I mean, I'm definitely still going to update the pages and stuff, um, you know, from a, from a secret podcast standpoint. But as far as just the mindless scrolling, it needs to stop. So I pulled that off. And the, uh, the, the commenting on stuff of that nature. Um, that's not me and I'm done. All right, I beat that one up. I think enough couple things came through my feed that I thought were uh, were interesting and relevant to the things we talk about. I found a few of these on the Drudge Report. This one, the Drudge link to the sun.co.uk. Uh, it's titled, Shire Genius. Florist man, quote, hobbits found in e- Indonesia were not direct relatives of modern humans, scientists confirm. Researchers discover that strange hobbits were not shrunken versions of humanity's ancient ancestor, Homo erectus. Uh, ancient hobbits recently discovered in Indonesia were not an early form of modern human, but an entirely different species, scientists have found. The ancient hobbits, who would have stood at 3.5 feet tall, were found in Langbua on the island of Flores in 2003. Experts initially believed the Homo florensius, or Flores man, were just a shrunken variety of early humans, but, at a, but a study by the Australian National University found the race were most likely a different species altogether. Researchers think they were related to a sister species of Homo habilis, one of the earliest known ancestors of modern mankind, which lived in Africa 1.75 million years ago. Uh, let's see. Dr. Debbie Argue from the ANU School of Archaeology and Anthropology said the results should help solve a debate that has been Hotly contested ever since Homo florensis was discovered. She said the analysis analyses show that on the family tree, Homo florensis was likely a sister species of Homo habilis. It means that the two shared a common ancestor. It's possible that Homo florensis evolved in Africa and migrated, or the common ancestor moved from Africa and then evolved into Homo florensis somewhere. I just find this interesting because our past, I think, is so... Interesting. There were humanoid species that weren't ape, that weren't mankind, that were out there. And if the old, the Earth is as old as they say that it is at this point, I don't know what to believe anymore. But even if it's a fraction as old as they say that it is, I, I keep saying, who's to say that mankind's the only intelligent species that has evolved? You know, that I, I really think that there's something else out there. Uh, again, that's a discussion for a different show, but I just thought this was interesting. Something to put in the back of your mind for uh, any truth-seeking that you're doing. I'll have the links in the show notes. You can look at that. This next one comes from us. Comes to us from The Telegraph. Again, I think I found this through Drudge as well. And this ties into Graham Hancock's work. I'm excited about what this is saying here. I think this is a huge deal. I don't know why this isn't mainstream stuff, but here we go. Ancient Stone Carvings. Confirm how comets struck Earth in 10,950 BC, sparking the rise of civilizations. This is by Sarah Napton on uh, 21 April 2017. Ancient stone carvings confirm that a comet struck the Earth around 11,000 BC, a devastating event which wiped out woolly mammoths and sparked the rise of civilizations. Experts at the University of Edinburgh analysis ana- analyzed mysterious symbols carved onto stone pillars at Gobekli Tepe in southern Turkey to find out if they could be linked to constellations. The markings suggest that a swarm of comet fragments hit Earth at the exact same time that a mini ice age struck, changing the entire course of human history. Scientists have speculated for decades that a comet could be behind the sudden fall in temperature during the period known as the Younger Dryas, but recently the theory appeared to have been debunked by a new dating of meteor craters in North America where the comet is thought to have struck. 
However, when engineers studied animal carvings made on a pillar known as the vulture stone at Gobekli Tepe, they discovered that the creatures were actually astronomical symbols which represented constellations and the comet. The idea had been originally put forward by author Graham Hancock in his book, Magicians of the Gods. Now, if you haven't read Graham's book, I suggest that right after this podcast, you find it, you download it, either you read it or you get the audio book. Graham meticulously dissects these things that if I was to sit here and talk about them, you'd be bored to tears. But as I'm listening to him describe this and the constellations and how he determined that these symbols actually represented constellations and they and the alignment of the constellations was actually a dating system that brought us back to this time period was so exciting to listen to and it blew my mind. Uh, going back to this, it says, Using a computer program to show where the constellations would have appeared above Turkey thousands of years ago, they were able to pinpoint the comet strike to 10,950 B.C., the exact time the Younger Dryas began, according to the ice core data from Greenland. So, uh, it goes on, The Younger Dryas is viewed as a crucial period for humanity as it roughly coincides with the emergence of agriculture and the first Neolithic civilizations. Before the strike Vast areas of wild wheat and barley had allowed nomadic hunters in the Middle East to establish per a permanent base, uh, permanent base camps. But the difficult climate conditions following the impact forced communities to come together and work out new ways of maintaining the crops through watering and selective breeding. Thus, farming began, allowing the rise of the first towns. Now, this confirms half of Graham's research and his book. Now, what Graham was saying was that. Well, once this happened, we actually lost civilization. This is saying this forced civilization to emerge. What Graham's book says is that there was a high society, a high civilization. And other researchers have come out and said, you know, that this was Atlantis that was in existence prior to this. And so there's been other accounts of why this has happened. I may be off on my dates, but... So Graham's argument is that, well, there was an advanced society that was out there, and, and again, I'm going to defer to his book to make the argument. It's worth your time to listen to what he talks about, but he, he shows correlations how these, these men came from somewhere and gave knowledge to various cultures, and that's throughout these ancient texts, these ancient his historical records, through drawings, through art, through some of the texts, through oral traditions, that somebody came from somewhere, and it's usually, I guess, a man with a white beard, and Graham was linking the drawings of this purse that seems to recur throughout the world, that they were giving the knowledge, re-giving the knowledge, they were re-teaching society how to survive. So this impact happened, the survivors who were knowledgeable, I guess, went underground. When they re-emerged, they started to rebuild society. Some people didn't get to safety, and they just rode out the storm, and they were the people left that became, I guess, these hunter-gatherers that were there. And I think I just think that's so fascinating. Now, does the, is this story another piece to the emergence of information that's going to come out based on the Wilcock testimony, David Wilcock testimony that I covered a few episodes back a few weeks ago talking about the presentation of information that there was a high technologically advanced society that was found on the, on in Antarctica. I haven't seen the confirmation of that yet. We've heard a few whispers of it, but is this a, a gradual buildup to something like that? I, at this point, I, I can't say for sure, but we are starting to see more and more of these things come out uh, you know, as a form of confirmation. So let's keep watching. Let's keep tracking this. I'm still digging into that whole piece there. I go back and forth. But speaking of that, uh, I was surfing Unknown Country, and I came across Whitley's Journal. That's Whitley Strieber, the founder of Unknown Country. This is from Sunday, April 9th. It's called Disclosure and the Razor's Edge. I'm just going to read different parts of this. But he acknowledges, he says, over the past few years, there have been at least a dozen people who have suggested that disclosure is coming. In February of 2016, presidential advisor John Podesta tweeted that his greatest regret on leaving his White House post was that he had not gotten President Obama to do this. Now, according to Tom DeLonge, there's supposed to be a disclosure event on May 16th. Strieber goes on, he states, He does have some inside knowledge. I know this because of some contacts he has attempted. So maybe something real will happen. I say maybe. I have no way to tell for sure. Now, Whitley goes on to speculate what 
this disclosure could look like, what it would mean. Um, but what really caught my attention, what I love about Whitley, and, and I kind of, I, I prescribe to this, I guess, idea or this train of thought he has. He's one of the, the main guys that broke the story of what people today call alien abduction. But he holds true that these creatures, these entities, these beings that he encountered, he says, I can't prove that they're alien. We don't know. And that's what scares me is that the assumption is always made, not always, but often made, that, wow, there's this advanced technology in the past. It's got to be alien. Or there's this unidentified flying craft. It's got to be alien. Or it's got to be secret government. Well, what if there's something in between? What if something else evolved and, and developed technology and then developed a base under the to the bottom depths of the ocean? We have tons of sightings of USOs, unidentified submerged objects. What if that's where they went? Or what if they're deep underground? You prescribe to the hollow earth theory or the honeycomb earth theory. What if, you know, there's there's so many myths and stories about this stuff, and what we're seeing is earth-based, non-human or humanoid, but earth-based. Based. I'm not saying aliens don't exist. My point is, it's possible that it's something else. I'm going to go back to what Whitley was saying, back to his, his article here. He says, unfortunately, the public has been ill-prepared for the release of such documents. I'm not trying to further the absurd idea that such an official admission would result in panic. Hardly. What it would do, however, is start what is going to be a generations-long process in a way that is going to be profoundly misleading. I agree with him. This is because the media and the people will at once jump to the conclusion that the objects involved must have been spacecraft from other planets. But this is not the way to look at this phenomenon and, in fact, is counterproductive. I'm going to give a side note now. Uh, Dr. Greer and Wilcock both talk about a secret space program, and they talk about human, humans as we know them having this type of technology. But let's jump back to Whitley and what he's saying is what's worse, there's a whole folklore that has grown up around the mystery of the UFO and the close encounter. This involves stories about different alien species and their interference across history, about alien alliances and federations and good aliens and bad aliens and on and on. The truth is that we know that there are mysterious aerial phenomenon and that people report ambiguous and unsettling experiences from time to time that appear to involve enigmatic entities that don't appear to be human. The insiders know that there are fragments of technology that do not appear to be human of human manufacture, but their origin and purpose remains a mystery. As to the close encounters, they are almost as much of an enigma to those who work behind closed doors, I feel sure, as they are to those attempting to study them in the public forum. However, the moment that those old reports are presented to the public, all sorts of people with no real idea of what is happening are going to be explaining who they are and where they come from. In a matter of days, the media is going to be bringing on people with terrifying stories of abduction. Lost in the brouhaha will be the fact that the only thing actually verified is that the unknown objects with unusual flight characteristics were seen and recorded. Let's take it a step further. Say some organic material is revealed, alien bodies, for example. Surely that would be definitive proof of the presence of aliens from another planet, but it wouldn't. It would be proof of the existence of such bodies in our possession. It would not be time to draw further conclusions that would inevitably be drawn. In fact, we know too little about the universe to draw any conclusion beyond the fact that the bodies don't appear to be human and are not of known earthly species. I want you, I'll have the link to this. You can read the rest of it because he keeps going further. But I agree with him. And let's say because I've been tracking this disclosure uh, you know, idea for the past few months now on the show publicly – we have some big names in the mainstream pushing for this, Podesta, the Clinton camp. You've got the work of uh, Dr. Greer and Wilcock. Dr. Greer was behind a disclosure project, and he's pulled a lot of what would be considered expert witnesses that testify to these things. But how do we know that they're alien? And I'm not saying aliens don't exist. Now, the remote viewing sessions coming out of the Farsight Institute do talk about the existence of aliens based on the data that they gather. And we can use that as a piece of evidence maybe to corroborate certain stories that are out there if we can learn to better incorporate remote viewing into our own research and analysis. My point is this. 
May 16th is coming up soon with Tom DeLonge's big announcement that's supposed to be coming out. Whatever that announcement is, please just focus on what is stated as fact. Listen to the opinion, but use the opinion as your point of research. Explore those facts that come out and then draw your own conclusions. If they say we have a body that is not human, all that proves is the body is not human. My fear from the beginning of this, again, with the release of the Ancient Aliens series, is that they want us to think there's aliens. Again, I don't think that it means aliens don't exist, but when they're telling you to look in a certain direction, my instincts tell me, look the other way. And that's what we should be doing. So be cautious with whatever examples are coming up. Something I wanted to add on one of my Tom DeLonge uh, shows that I did, I was cruising through his Facebook page, and it's interesting to note... To give the guy some credibility, in the military we have something called a challenge coin. Every unit you're a part of has its own unique coin. It's got its own unit identifier. Uh, it's usually a picture or a symbol that represents your unit. And when you go out drinking, you pull out your coin. Whoever doesn't have their coin or whoever has the highest ranking coin or the lowest ranking coin has to buy the next round of drinks or something. It's a fun thing that they do. It's a commemorative thing. Well, DeLonge displayed his display case of... Uh, of challenge coins that he received. I'm not an expert on challenge coins, but there was some challenge coins that he had in his collection that had uh, UFOs on them. They had alien faces on them. I haven't done any more research into exploring them and where they come from. Obviously, the guy's got money. He could simply have them made up if this is a part of an elaborate ruse. Or maybe there actually are units that are secretive units that create their own challenge coins, maybe, that's out there. I just thought that was an interesting piece of corroborating information. You know, people seem to say that you know Delange does have some high-level contacts. So, who knows? Maybe there is something to this. Again, though, I'm going to stick to my original position. Show me the evidence, not just a great story. If you have an expert witness and and all you have is that witness's story, and you're not disclosing who that witness is, it's nothing but a great story. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let me jump into one more uh, story that I, th or two more that I have actually. This is going on today, right now, April 21st, 2017. This is from San Francisco, SF Gate, standing for San Francisco Gate.com. Massive, massive power outage, outage hits San Francisco, shuts down businesses, BART station, cable cars, and traffic lights. A massive blackout likely caused by a fire at PG&E substation swept through San Francisco on Friday, darkening homes and businesses for hours, shutting down a subway station and all the cable cars, and knocking out streetlights across a wide swath of the city. The power outage, which at its height affected 88,000 customers, struck just after 9 a.m. when a fire erupted at a Pacific Gas and Electric Company depot at Larkin and Eddy Streets. Catastrophic failure of a circuit breaker ignited... Insulation causing a fire and explosion, said Barry Anderson, a PG&E vice president. The subdivision was already scheduled for an overhaul, he said, which is expected to be completed by the fall of 2018. The outage was from, quote, old equipment, Anderson said. The equipment failed before we could get to the upgrade. Mayor Ed Lee said no major industries, injuries or traffic collisions were caused by the outage. Hospitals in blackout areas were operating on backup power with surgeries and other procedures continuing without issue, he said. Again, is this an indication of America's crumbling infrastructure? Quite possibly it is. We have so many issues going on around us. That's why I think it's important not to prepare for the apocalypse, but prepare yourself for an emergency. You may be one day without power, without heat, without water, without food for extended periods of time. Natural disasters happen. Terrorism happens. This isn't something to scare you. It's just a fact of life now. So if you don't have some kind of plan or some kind of prep in place, again, I don't think you should train and expect a zombie apocalypse because we've got to be mindful of what we're putting out there because our consciousness and our thoughts can impact, I think, our future reality. I covered that in last week's show if you want to listen to that. But we need to still have a plan because sometimes stuff just happens. Speaking of stuff just happening, this one comes from the Sun. Brace yourselves, solar. I'm sorry, from the Sun.co.uk. I'm clarifying that because the title of this article is "Brace Yourselves: Solar Flare Spewing from Mega Hole in the Sun Could Cause Blackout Mayhem." Is this the big one that they're warning for? I'm not spreading fear and panic. I'm just throwing that out there. 
But this is by Margie, Margie Murphy, April 21st, 2017. A gaping hole in the sun's atmosphere has turned toward Earth and is belching, quote, fast-moving radioactive particles. NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory got wind of the massive hole on Friday morning. The coronal hole is a vast region where the sun's magnetic field tears apart, allowing solar wind to escape. Supercharged solar winds flowing from the sun's atmosphere are expected to reach Earth on April 23rd or 24th, according to the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. This could whip up a, quote, moderately strong geomagnetic storm. Uh, where are we at here? Uh, these kinds of storms are behind the beautiful natural phenomenon, the northern lights, but a storm of this magnitude could have an effect on power grids and navigation systems across the Earth's surface. G2 storms affect plane and military radio systems, spacecraft operations, and could trigger voltage alarms or cause equipment damage in power systems. Scientists are growing increasingly concerned over the effect of a solar explosion, flare, or storm could have on humanity. Our growing dependence on technology puts humans at a greater risk if power grids, planes, and satellites stop working. Okay, so this is a real threat. This is something that would be mind we need to be mindful of. The grid very well could go down. Now, I checked suspicious observers. Uh, actually, I checked spaceweathernews.com. They have a few updates. I haven't listened to the last couple days' worth of uh, daily news. Check them out. I'll have the links again to them in the show notes. If you haven't downloaded the Disaster Prediction app, you need to do that today. They're fantastic. They're predicting earthquakes. They're predicting human health alerts, which ties into the electromagnetic fields, which I talk a lot about in my shows. And they're going to have information on this if we're going to be shut down, if there's going to be a grid that's going down. You need to be aware of it. Again, don't panic. But understand, over the next couple of days, we may have some power outages, we may have some grids going down, we may have communication issues. Plan for it. Think about what you would do in a worst-case scenario as well. If the grid goes dark and the grid goes dark for a long period of time, it's not the end of the world. It's not time to take to the streets and start rioting. Have a plan ahead of time so you don't get sucked into that drama. But looking at their updates at spaceweathernews.com, uh, April 20th, geomagnetic storms have resurfaced after intensification of a solar wind. NOAA systems are intermittently experiencing outages, and other electrical glitches are possible across the globe in the coming 48 hours. April 21st, 1055 UTC, solar wind is finally easing up, and solar flaring is back in low range. However, many CMEs, which is coronal mass ejections, have left our star due to filament eruptions and long-duration X-ray events. None are, none are heading at Earth yet. April 21st, 1723 UTC, magnometers are spiking. Solar wind intensification is leading to auroral outbursts and possible geomagnetic storms today. I'm going to keep checking on this. Check to see what they're going to tell you as well. This is probably, in my opinion, one of the best places to go for this type of information we're living in some challenging times. Besides the crazy weather, besides the disclosure stuff, we've got the uh, you know the talks of war between North Korea, the United States, Syria. It's all gotten a little bit quiet lately. Apparently, Trump's uh, show of force, South Korea, was calling it a big bluff and a disappointment because he didn't live up to the hype that it, that he was uh, expected to. Russia's buzzing with uh, fighter jets capable of carrying nuclear weapons off the coast of Alaska, but that's nothing to panic about because they do that all the time, so don't hit the panic button just yet. All right, again, I could go on forever just talking about the news. I want to touch on some of the World War One stuff. Uh, I'm putting my lesson plans together for next week. Again, I'm just teaching high school level history here, and this is actually in the history books, these things that I think are really, really interesting. But I started... Uh, where do I want to go with this? i got to do a show on the... I'm going to stay away from it tonight, but I have to do a show on the... Uh, on the Spanish flu that came out after World War One, because I just find it so interesting and so relevant to some of the stuff that we're dealing with here. So I have a quote here. This quote says, I hate war because, because war is murder, desolation, and destruction. If one-tenth of what has been spent on preparedness for war had been spent on the prevention of war, the world would always have been at peace. That was said by Henry Ford of Ford Motor Company. 
And it holds true today as well. And we know that and we hear similar comments being made in, in that direction. Now, Henry Ford, obviously, he made a ton of money. His industry was in high demand. I, he had orders to build, I want to say, something like 16,000 tanks and 20,000 tractors. Because when World War One, when the United States got involved in World War One, what happened on the home front, it scares me because... The nation got involved in the war, ultimately because we were wanted to protect those in charge, wanted to protect our financial investments overseas. We had connections to Britain, and Britain was involved in the war because Germany plowed through Belgium, and Belgium had an alliance with Britain, so Britain therefore came to the defense of Belgium because Germany was going after France, because France had threatened Germany, and Germany had threatened Russia, and Russia was France's ally. It's a freaking confusing nightmare, but basically because the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in Serbia because Serbia was pissed off because they had been annexed by the Austria-Hungarian Empire. They shot the Archduke Ferdinand. Austria-Hungary's like, yo, Serbia, we're coming after you. And Serbia's like, yeah, we're not going to do anything about We're not going to change the way you want us to change. So they declare war against Serbia, and that's when Russia gets involved, and that's when all these alliances... I know I'm going fast on purpose, but it's, it's confusing, and it's mind-blowing. But it shows us how, because of certain alliances, how easy it was to spiral into this World War I. And the way they marketed World War I, it was sold as the war to end war all wars. And what they did was they started getting people in the mindset of patriotism and loyalty to the United States, getting them prepared, mentally prepared to go fight this war to, honestly, to protect the investments of those of the top elite. Now, obviously, there were trick there would be trickle-down effects if those investments were damaged, but it, it came to, that's what it really seems to me in my limited research, so if you can correct me, please do so, but that's what I'm seeing right now based on what I'm uh, coming across, that that's really what, what this came down to. And I know there's a great podcast, All Wars or Bank Wars. I'll find a link to that. Check that out. It's, it's well worth your time. Okay? Uh, but one of the things they did to finance this war, they're starting to get people mentally prepared for this. They're getting them on board with, I'm a patriot, I'm loyal, uh, I'm willing to fight for my country, uh, you know, in the interest of the United States. And it gets really uh, downright oppressive what the U U.S. government was doing at this point in time. But how they started off to finance this war, they started borrowing money from the United States people. What they did was they sold war bonds. And the people said, you know what, I'm a patriot because I've been listening to this indoctrination that they've put, been putting out there, and I'm going to buy a war bond. Well, that money that you spent on a war bond went directly to fund the war. So they would sell this bond, and then at a later date, the people that purchased the bonds could redeem the bond plus interest. They'd get their money back plus some at a later you know, date. I, I don't know how long afterwards that was. Okay, so, But through the sale of bonds, the government raised more than $20 billion. And these funds allowed the U.S. to pay uh, a quarter of its war costs and loan more than $10 billion. I'm sorry, I think the number's a million. I need to check my numbers here. Uh, I'm going off my, my own notes. Uh, either way, $10 million, I think it was $10 million. $10 million. And the, uh, the funds were used to pay about a quarter of its war costs, and they were still able to loan more than $10 million to the Allies after the war. So, that, I mean, they raised a lot of money to go be a part of this war. Okay, And some of the other things that they did, they developed the Boy Scouts for the children because what the Boy Scouts did was it gave the children uh, military-esque uniforms, taught them to march, and, and ultimately take orders because they would turn into good soldiers one day. Now, I can't wait. I've always been excited. I didn't know this part of the history about the Boy Scouts, but I can't wait to put my son in Boy Scouts because I think it's really neat, practical stuff that he's going to learn. But this, I bring this to our attention on the show because it, there was another motive behind it. The, I, I, one of the themes I track regularly on my show is the manipulation of thought, the manipulation of behavior, the manipulation of consciousness. Are our thoughts and ideas and beliefs our own, or are we drawing these conclusions based on the information that's being fed from us from state-run agencies? And that was a big push during this time. Get everybody behind the war. They, they, they created all sorts of different boards, the War Industries Board, the War Trade Board, the National War Labor Board, the War Labor Policies Board. Uh, they had a Food and Fuel Control Act. 
uh, and they had a food administration. Hoover was in charge of the food administration. He had the power to begin rationings, but Hoover apparently thought that that was a little bit unfair and unjust. He was hoping more for a voluntary rationing of food, and he had all these different slogans out there, uh, but he believed that the American woman and the American home would be able to bring a successful end to the greatest national task that had ever been accepted by the American people, and that's his quote. Um, but the fuel administration, this is, this is what really got me. This, this blew my mind because it's not something I knew. It's a simple statement. Maybe some of you out there knew it. I didn't. But the fuel administration created daylight savings. By shifting an hour of sunlight from early morning to the evening, it increased the number of daylight hours available for work and reduced the need for artificial lighting, lowering the dependency or the money needed to be spent on electricity and gas so the government could divert that toward war. I mean, that's completely altering your... You know what a pain in the neck daylight savings is? I hate daylight savings. That's the reason. It was all about war and saving money or raising money to fund the war and to get more work out of the American people. That really frustrated me to hear that. I, I really uh, now I want to live in a state that doesn't have daylight savings. Why do we have it today? I think it's nothing more than a headache than a pain in the neck, really. Okay, <clears throat> so they did something else to to maintain and enforce loyalty. The press, the media, it came under federal control during this time, and they imposed the government imposed restrictions on the press and banned some publications from from the public. Okay. Apparently, and I need to look into this more. I'm pulling this information out of a, out of a history textbook, so I'm gonna I'm gonna deem it credible. But I want to find out the title of this movie. It was a movie about the Civil War, or I'm sorry, the Revolutionary War. It was banned, and the producer was actually in prison because it showed British troop, troops killing American women and children. Why was that a problem? Because Britain was America's ally at now, at, at the time of World War I. Obviously, they still are. And they didn't want the American people to watch this movie and say, wow, Britain's bad, look what they did. We hate the British. They wanted them to be on board backing Britain. Why? Because Britain had, we had so much money invested in the trade with Britain. So we had to get the American people behind that thinking, Britain's good, Britain's our ally, Britain is worth going to war to die for because we make a lot of money with Britain. That's where this is coming from. It's just, this just blows my mind because the number of people who died as a result of this war. Okay. There was a fear of foreigners. Uh, you know, so the, the government was worried that these foreigners were going to act as spies to disrupt communication and railways and systems, which that, from what I understand, was based on a, a there was a German businessman who left a briefcase on a train, and in that briefcase they found plans of espionage and disrupting things. That's a real threat. We know that. But what happened during World War II when this fear got the best of us after Pearl Harbor? They took hundreds and thousands of Japanese American citizens and placed them in internment camps. They imprisoned American citizens who happened to be of Japanese descent because we were at war with Japan. Now, this happened during World War I. They didn't have the internment camps, but there were some issues with our views of German people. There was uh, one individual by the name of Robert Prager who was actually lynched by, by, uh, by American citizens. So it, it's really frustrating some of the things that, to hear some of those things that happen. Again, why did this happen? Because of fear. This is what war breeds. This is what this indoctrination of thought breeds among the American people. Because I really wonder, if the people, if the people had an opportunity to choose, not the governments who, dis, who make the choices to launch bombs to fulfill their agenda and what they feel is the best interest of their nations. If, the, if it came down to the people, would we choose a path of war without being subjected to this propaganda that skews our thoughts and our views on things? I, I, I don't know. I don't think that we would. It, what's also interesting is that the American literacy test to, uh, to become a naturalized citizen was also changed here, uh, and they made it for they were only accepting people who were literate, who were only able to read and write, I think, in English or another language. Didn't have much of an impact, but, you, you know, and we can go back and forth on that one. That's just an interesting fact there. Do we want to accept people into this country who are illiterate, or do we want to take the best and the brightest to better our country? That's, you know, I guess that's up to your own personal opinion. So this is what's really interesting to me is that in 1917, I'm going to have to jump to notes here because I'm not an expert on this, but there was something passed called the Espionage Act. And let me scroll through this here. So 1917, U.S. Congress passes the Espionage Act. I'm getting this from history.com. 
uh, enforced largely by A. Mitchell Palmer, the United States Attorney General under President Woodrow Wilson, the Espionage Act essentially made it a crime for any person to convey information intended to interfere with the U.S. Armed Forces prosecution of the war effort or to promote the success of the country's enemies, anyone found guilty of such acts would be subject to a fine of $10,000 and a prison sentence of 20 years. Well, on face value, again, as somebody who worked in that industry, yeah, we really shouldn't be undermining our own military in terms of are we compromising their information or we compromising their safety. I get that it's within the nation's interest to promote that, but I feel that this went a little far because we know they're already controlling the press and the media. You're not allowed to say bad things about the country and the media. I'm going to give a side note here. Again, there, I, I, the author of the poem escapes me, but I'm going to quote it here. This is not my writing. It is the soldier who honors the flag, who salutes the flag, who serves beneath the flag, whose coffin is draped by the flag, who allows the protester to burn the flag. And I've talked about this on my show before, I'm not a fan of burning the American flag, but I support someone's right to do it. And why? Because to understand true freedom, to understand that we have the right to say, F you government, which I'm not saying right now, but to say that we have that freedom to do that, that is an incredibly precious thing that I can say what I want in that I can express myself how I want as long as I'm not infringing on the freedoms of someone else. That is an incredible thing to have. And when we start putting restrictions on that, we are giving up freedoms. Even if we don't agree with someone's ability to say or do something, I respect their right to do it. And I remember when I had that realization as a soldier, as I was getting ready to deploy, I recognized what my service meant to me was that I was willing to lay down my life to protect true freedom. And that included the burning of the flag. I would have given my life for someone's right to burn the flag. And that's what freedom is. Again, I don't like the burning of the flag. I don't necessarily respect someone who burns a flag. I find it offensive and disrespectful. But I I believe in their right to do it. Let's move back to this on uh, History.com. The Espionage Act was reinforced by the Sedition Act of the following year, which imposed similarly harsh penalties on anyone found guilty of making false statements that interfered with the prosecution of the war insulting or abusing the U.S. government, the flag, the Constitution, or the military, agitating against the production of necessary war materials, or advocating, teaching, or defending any of these acts. These Both pieces of legislation were aimed at socialist pacifists or other anti-war activists during World War I and were used to punish used to punishing effect in the years immediately following the war during a period characterized by the fear of communist influence. It goes on and on. I'm not covering that stuff in this episode. In a textbook, I read that the Sedition Act, 1500, roughly 1,500 people were prosecuted, and I believe they got convictions on 1,000 people. Check my numbers on that. But one of the things, again, we deserve the right to question our government's choices to go to war because people die. And the people who die are our own family members. They're the people that we care about. And we should have the right to question that. I'm not saying something that's anti-American. I'm not saying something that's anti-government. What I'm saying is that as an American, as a free citizen, as a veteran, we deserve the right to do that. Now, this is 1918, but some parts of this are still in effect today. Now, let's see here. Let me jump into, uh, again, I just did a quick search here. This is at government-programs.laws.com slash espionage act. And let me pull this up because it's taking a minute here. All right, here we go. So the background of the Espionage Act, it, it talks about, um, you know, just everything that I covered. But parts of this are still in existence today. Uh, the Espionage Act was formally extended in May of 1918 through the passing of the Sedition Act. And let's see. <clears throat> All right, here we go. I'm, I'm 
my apologies, I'm jumping around a little bit. But during World War One, not one American was convicted of spying or unpatriotic behavior under the Espionage Act. That being said, federal prosecutors used the law to file over 2,000 cases and process roughly 1,000 convictions. Representatives of the political left were mostly targeted. The government prosecuted American socialists, including the party's leader and presidential candidate, Eugene Debs. Prosecutors also targeted high-ranking officials of the militant left-wing, industrial workers, and the world group. The majority of the prosecutions filed under the Espionage and Sedition Act revolved around anti-war speeches that were largely directed at soldiers and conscripts. However, other speeches, which were typically delivered in innocuous fashions with the peaceful undertones, were also prosecuted under the Espionage and Sedition Act. This worries me. Uh, again, I need to find out more about how this is in, in power today. Obviously, if this was being enforced at that level today, shows like mine would be shut down. Shows like Alex Jones would be shut down. We'd see a lot more of these prosecutions in my limited research of this, it looks like this is used today when they have more evidence showing that, well, your acts directly led to the compromise of classified information or to military operations or something of that nature. As far as I can tell, we still have the right to express ourselves and express our differences and to say these things. That doesn't mean you're not going to be targeted and looked at, but we still do enjoy those rights. I don't want to use this information to say, hit the panic button, this is what's happening, this is what's coming down the pipeline. I recognize I need to look more into this, and I hope that you can as well and send me whatever you find. However, why am I covering this today? Again, there's a lot of political turmoil out there. There's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of things being said, a lot of things that are changing. We need to be mindful. This happened. This happened during World War I. I covered the Pentagon Papers stuff about Vietnam and the corruption that went on there that drug us into war. This jumped out at me as we're studying World War I. I think we need to be mindful of it. We need to be cautious of that. We need to watch closely what's being passed if we find ourselves going to war again. We need to be mindful of the manipulation through the mainstream media and through memes today that we have. Because... Now it's, it's more obvious we have multiple sides who have the right to have these voices out there. So we're being kind of, they're competing for our minds. Have your own thoughts. Use caution when you see something that spreads hate or dehumanizes an entire people. There are groups out there that have and will continue to do bad things given our current state of affairs in the world. Do not allow those acts to overshadow and dehumanize an entire race of people that could ultimately lead to genocide. Fear for our own sovereignty and safety is a powerful motivator, but remember there are other ways. I've covered these other ways on the show as well. Don't wait until we're at the moment of conflict to then say, well, I guess I can't meditate anyway. It's going to change things. If you're thinking long-term, if you're thinking prevention, there are things we can do now on a level of metaphysics, on a level of consciousness. I discussed it in last week's show. Please go back and listen to it. We need to be mindful of our purchases. We need to be mindful of our actions and our interactions and what we are putting out there because some of these things that we put out there and promote and dis- talk about and laugh about are being taken by people who are quote spying on the American people they're using that as propaganda in their own countries to fuel hatred for the American people this has always been a concern of mine that's why when you put it out there if it's public you need to be careful because you may not see where that goes but there are people in other nations who find that and they use that and they give it to young kids just like it has been done here in the past and say hate these people here's what they're saying about you here's some images of some dead kids here's what they're doing to your people I'm not saying it's all true. I'm saying it's being presented as if it is and used against us. Put out what you want to receive back. All right, I've talked for quite some time here. Let me see if there's anything else that I wanted to cover here. Not at this point in time. Again, this is just a starting point here. I came across this stuff actually today as I'm preparing my lesson plans for next week. It's high school level stuff. But again, it's stuff I didn't know or stuff I didn't remember, and I think it's important and relevant to today. So I hope you're still with me. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear any updates, any more information you have. I'm trying to find, uh, actually here it is right here, a little update on the Espionage Act. 
Uh, the Espionage and Sedition Acts are still implemented today. In 2005, Lawrence Franklin, a Pentagon-Iran expert, was indicted under the act. Franklin ultimately pled guilty to conspiracy to disclose national defense materials to lobbyists and an official for the Israeli government. Franklin was sentenced to a maximum of 12 years in federal prison. This sentence was later reduced to 10 months home confinement. It's a slap on the wrist, really. Okay, so it's still in use today, but again, the act that he did... By you getting out there and saying, hey, have you heard about this? What do you think about this? What's your opinion? That doesn't seem to fit the criteria. Um, so, again, don't let this terrify you to exercise your right for free speech at this point in the game. Just be mindful of what could potentially happen because we need to anticipate the way things may go once again throughout history. Because, again, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Let's not make those same mistakes. Let's learn from them instead and move forward in our pursuit of knowledge. I'm Dennis Nappy II. This has been another episode of The Seeker Podcast. Again, if you are a podcaster, if you are a blogger, if you are a writer, if you're an author, if you're an artist, there is a new platform in the works, and we are looking for people to join our team to help spread the word, to help share positive information and explore many of the things we talk about beyond just politics and history the esoteric realm, the metaphysical realm, and exploring human consciousness, UFOs, aliens, disclosure, all those topics. We're looking for people who have maybe just getting started and have uh, something important to say or you're already well-established and you want to join our movement as well. I'd love to hear from you right now. Hit me up at serviceofchange.com. I'll give you more information once you tell me what your angle is. Alrighty. Remember that small changes among the masses can have a massive impact around the world. I encourage you to be that change. Never stop questioning and keep an open mind. Thank you. Seekers.